This is a 980 CKNW podcast. Welcome to the Sunday Night Health Show podcast. Jennifer Abenson escaped a serial killer. How was she able to survive the attack? She shares her frightening but enlightening and inspirational story of how to survive during and after her escape. Also, Dr. Kevin McLeod joins me to answer your health questions. And finally, why should you install a mirror on the ceiling in your bedroom? The Sunday Night Health Show podcast starts now. Welcome back to the Sunday Night Health Show. Maureen McGrath hosting this program for you. Thank you, everybody, for listening this evening. Um, my next guest escaped a serial killer. She is the author of the book, The Girl in the Treehouse. Her name is Jennifer Abenson, and it's quite a frightening yet inspirational story. And she joins me on the line. Good evening, Jennifer. She's coming. We're having just a little technical difficulty. Just want to talk to you a little bit about this book. It's a fantastic, it's a fantastic book. And she actually wrote it in the treehouse. And we're going to find out why she did that. Good evening, Jennifer. Hi, how are you? I'm fine. Thank you. How are you? I'm doing really good. Thank you. Oh, I'm so pleased. I'm so happy to uh, have you join me on the program and share your story. Uh, It's quite um, an incredible story, and it's actually going to be featured on a segment of A&E that will air later this summer. And I I do want to talk to you about that um, in a little bit. But basically, you escaped a serial killer. You had quite a childhood, I will say. How were you able to survive? I mean, (laughs) quite a childhood. And then um, and then quite a life afterward as well. I mean, you've overcome mental illness. I mean, it's a great book. I have to say I haven't finished it, full disclosure, but I'm I'm right into it. Um, But how were you able to survive this attack? And if you had to do it all over again, I I mean, I think let's let's just step it back a little bit. Um, I think it starts out the story is quite simple, this serial killer, which obviously you didn't know was a serial killer, just stopped mm-hmm. and said, do you, do you need a ride? And you said, yes, I do. And on, on some level, you were escaping a very traumatic childhood. But, um, you know, many people might ask, why did you get into the car? And, and then how, did, how were you able to survive this attack? And if you want to give us a little more background on, on the situation, uh, feel free, like what, um, like what your childhood yeah. was like. Yeah, well, the reason I got in the car is just really simple. I needed a ride, you know, and back then we didn't have cell phones. We didn't have anything like that or any kind of, if you had a backup plan, like today you could get a hold of people and I couldn't. And I thought it was a godsend. I was like, okay, he's here. Um, I do need a ride. And, you know, my childhood uh, goes into it right there because, I I didn't know a lot about bad people in the world. And I had, this is the the first time I left my house, moved out onto my own. And I'd been missing work because I had no car. And how old were you? What was that? How old were you at the time? Oh, I was 19. Okay. I was 19. And when I worked at this job in the first place, I would take my parents' car. But then when I moved out on my own, I had to rely on the bus, which I didn't have a lot of life experience because I grew up in Morongo Valley with no electricity or running water until I was in my teen years. And we, we had a generator. You know, we if we watched TV, we never watched things about serial killers and 
you know, I just, it just wasn't in my mind. You know, we only think about things that have been, you know, put in our mind, but through well, had TV, no one ever, whatever. Had your parents ever said to you, um, don't get into car, a car with a stranger? No, 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 no. And if you, in my book, actually, you'll see that my mom actually just dropped me off in the, on this desolate road when I was eight because I was fighting with my sister when I was around eight um, and said, hopefully somebody else picks you up. So, yeah, I didn't. I, and I hope yeah. somebody else would have because my childhood was not that fun. And I stood there with like a concerned look on my face, looking at the cars going by, hoping that somebody else would have picked me up. So that, I mean, people, it, it all goes by your own experiences and what you've been through, how you view my story and what you think you would have or would have not done. It all goes by your experience. And of my course. experiences growing up were uh, a lot different because I hoped somebody would pick me up when I was that young. I wasn't scared. I was more scared of my mother picking me back up, which she did. And that wasn't good, which is in my book, (laughs) which is like, I I wasn't, you know, I thought the the, the main point of all of this is that I saw all of the scariness and the trauma and the crazy stuff was in my own home because out of my home, when I was visiting a friend or at my grandma's or somewhere else, it was very nice and calm. So I thought it was all in my home because I was young and you know, a child growing up, just turned 19. And right when I went out on my own, I thought people were nice. You know, I thought this guy was doing me a favor by right. offering me a ride. So that's why what, I got in the car. And then what happened after you got in the car? Um, I still thought he was nice. We just chit-chatted. He gave me a ride to work. He said some things that were you know, a little bizarre, but not nothing scary, nothing that made me want to jump out of the car at night because it was nearly 10 o'clock at night. No, nothing scary enough to make me jump out. Just some things that made me go, I think this guy is a little, like, weird. Like, that's weird that he would say this or that, whatever he said, you know. But then he dropped me off, and, and he asked for the number, said, asked for my phone number, said goodbye, just normal you know it it, that part seemed normal and i thought okay i've had people ask for my number before and i'm just gonna give him a fake number because if i do that he'll call it and he'll just see that i'm not interested and and he'll just leave me alone you know and i'll be on my way and i'll take the bus home tomorrow but that's not what happened he he tried to call the number and Somebody else answered, I guess. He got really upset, and, you know, I didn't know. He was a serial killer. So he's pretty much sharpening his knife, saying, this girl just gave me a fake number, blah, blah, blah. You know, I'm. he's planning what he's going to do to me. In the meantime, I'm working a night shift from 10 at night till 6 in the morning, taking care of handicapped, disabled girls, children. And I wasn't thinking anything about him. I thought... You know, I'm taking care of these girls. This guy was kind of weird, you know. I did call a friend and say, can you pick me up? I just have a kind of weird feeling, but I don't know. And my friend reassured me, you'll be fine. Just take the bus. And I was like, okay, I'll just, like, walk the other way just in case. Because I have a weird feeling, but I don't, I've never had this before. And, but I kind of did in growing up. 
I had the weird feelings that my mom was going to come around. I never knew what was going to uh-huh. happen. So, so I, it was very easy for me to dismiss an, an uneasy feeling uh-huh. because I never knew what the outcome was going to be. Right. And then so what happened what after you? Mm-hmm. Yeah, I just dismissed the feeling and I just took care of the children and, and it just freaks me out to think that when I left that morning, that could have been like the last day that anybody had seen me. Do you know what I mean? Because oh yeah, he pulls up. I walked the other way because I thought I'm not going to walk straight to the bus stop because I was very naive and young. And he asked questions and I answered them. You know, I didn't. I, I don't like confrontation, so I was just like, yeah, the bus stop's here. I kind of pretty much told him everything. So I thought, mm-hmm. if I go this way, he won't see me. So I walked, tried to walk up around the other way, and I heard tires coming up alongside me, you know. Um, and and I wasn't scared. I just thought, oh, gosh, he's he just, it's, I know it's him. He just doesn't get it. He's just. But I wasn't used to that. If you give somebody the wrong number, you're not used to them showing up. You kind of don't know what to think, you know? Right. So he pulls up. And not only, this is what a lot of people freak out about. Like, she got in the car once, but not just once, but twice. Because, yeah, I trusted him. Like, if this, if you were ever to think of a serial killer, someone that's going to murder you, why wouldn't they do it when it's dark? when they picked you up the first time. So I had no fear of him, you know, because he just gave me a ride in the dark to a place. He never showed up there in the middle of the night, tried to hurt me. He brought me to the place I was going, didn't do anything to me in the dark of the night, you know, the cover of darkness, which is usually when these kind of people do that stuff, you know, and, so I thought when he was pulling up the next day, you know, I kind of felt like I knew him. He was kind of a friend that I just didn't want to date. That was all I was thinking. Uh-huh. So when he pulled up, I got in the car and I, well, he opened, leaned over, opened the passenger door. I got in and I was like, just being kind of bashful, you know, and, and just going, I didn't, I didn't know you were going to come back. I said, you shouldn't have. And, you know, I forgot about the fake number thing and all that. But then we started driving and he said, do you want to go to breakfast? And I said, I really, I would rather just you just bring me home, but I really appreciate it. And I was super nice to him. And then he just freaked out and he brought up the phone number, which I had forgotten that morning. I'd forgotten that I had given that bad phone number. Um, And then I was just like, I just went into shock and he just started tying me up and bashed my head into the dashboard and brought me into the desert. And I'm just trying to say it all real fast, you know, but in my book is in complete detail because I laid my soul on the line and said everything in complete detail just to let people know what I went through, you Uh know, but he brought me into the desert he um, tried to rape me, which he couldn't. Um, were you fighting and, him off? Well, my hands were tied behind my back, so it was a little hard. Oh. 
to fight him off, he had tied my hands behind my back with twine. I had a sweatshirt on. Um, uh-huh. I knew he had done it before because he reached under and cut my bra off. And, and when he did it, it was so methodical. He knew right where to cut and pull out where uh-huh. my entire bra came off. And, what, and, like, it just came off. And I couldn't even uh-huh. do that without practice, you know. So I knew. I was like, this guy has done this before, whatever he's doing to me. And then he tried to cut my jean shorts off, and he just ended up pulling them off. He took my shoes that had, like, a bit of a heel on them because I had two pairs of shoes because I worked through the night. So I had comfortable shoes and then another pair of shoes, like clogs mm-hmm. or whatever you call them. He started beating me in the head with those. It just turned um, so crazy, and I was in complete shock. And I just really thought, I'm, I'm, this is like the, a devil. The, he, this guy's a demon. He, this is. Mm-hmm. You said that I, he I couldn't rape you, but yet, you, you said he couldn't rape you, uh, but he almost raped you. But with your hands tied, how, how did you prevent that? I didn't prevent it. It was, um, he just couldn't perform. He he okay. just couldn't do anything. And the crazy mm-hmm. thing is, I was so young and naive. I was 19 when the detectives asked me if he raped me. I said, I think, but I don't know. And they said, well, did he penetrate you? I didn't even know what the word penetrate meant. Mm-hmm. I didn't know. Mm-hmm. And so mm-hmm. I said, I think, because he, like, tried to. But I was I escaped into my mind when he had climbed over into the passenger seat and pushed my legs apart and was trying to have sex with me, I just escaped into my mind. And I just did this thing where I just tried to push. I Physically, mm-hmm. I tried to push. And I thought that would keep me from feeling anything he was doing to me. So I really didn't know if he was having sex with me or not. Right. Until I really thought about it. Because I was young. I had not. I was not experienced. I was not like a very sexually active person. I did not know I didn't know, you know, and exactly. I thought maybe my, I protected myself enough with my mind by thinking, you don't want this. Oh, my God, my hands are tight behind my back. All I could do was press my chest out and tighten my hands. I mean, that was all the reflexes I had. And then I am sure my lower abdominum, you know, to try to not feel it and push mm-hmm. it away. I thought if I try to physically push whatever he's doing to me away, it'll protect me somehow. But then I did notice that he started getting upset. And when he was getting upset, I did notice that he had like an erectile dysfunction. And because it was making him angry, of course, I was in a very vulnerable state. I was tied up. Uh I was in the middle of nowhere. I'm not going to say anything mean to him about it. I'm going to tell him it's okay and try to comfort him because I want to live. Welcome back to the Sunday Night Health Show. Maureen McGrath hosting this program for you. Jennifer Abenson is my guest. She wrote the book Girl in the Treehouse. Thanks, Jennifer, for staying on the line. You're welcome. Now, I just want to recap for those who are just joining us. Um, You uh, wrote this book after having been abducted and survived an attack by a serial killer. Your upbringing, which is pertinent to um, this story, was abusive, as you describe, and dysfunctional and chaotic. Um, After your, uh, you obviously survived this. um, Thank goodness you survived this attack by a serial killer that you didn't realize was a serial killer, obviously. Um, But that's, 
after that attack that you survived, um, your, um, it, you know, you were talking a little bit about how you escaped in your mind. Uh, and, and that, I'm assuming that may have helped you to survive this. Um, was, oh, that, yeah. was that your most important survival tool? It was. And I, growing up and even till now, I've always relied on three things, and that's God, humor, and imagination. And without one of those things, I would not have been able to survive. You know, the first time someone asked me uh, to do an interview, I actually asked them if they wanted the funny version or or like a really um, dramatic version. And they were shocked. They said the funny version. And because it was so horrifying to me what had happened to me, I had to make it funny. And then right. until he was caught, you know, because I didn't know who he was. And so when I would tell people this, what happened to me before he was caught, I had to turn it funny. So I had to use humor. And, and I've always had God and then use the humor and then my imagination. To, and that, those three things have get, got me through everything, everything hard that I've ever faced. Which is amazing. Now, you also, after your escape from the serial killer, Andrew uh, Udialis, Udialis, um, you were in and out of mental hospitals. Tell me a little bit about that uh, era in your life. We don't have a, a lot of time left, but because um, I do want to get to your A and E um, as well. Maybe right? We'll, yeah. Well, um, the mental yeah. hospitals that was um, very weird because. Uh, basically nobody believed me and I had a nervous breakdown, ended up in a hospital, woke up, strapped down to some bed in a mental hospital. I mean, it was horrifying because what I'd known in mental hospitals was like, you're just crazy, you know? So when I got into the mental hospitals, I, before this attack, I had never, I mean, I had taken Tylenol, things like that. But when I got into this mental hospital, they couldn't believe my story. They thought it was insane. They thought I was schizophrenic. They put me on so many different medications that it altered my mind. And it, it was just so weird because I, I, for, I didn't know if this happened or not. I started to believe it didn't happen because everybody around me, you know, who were, were professionals, and I'm just a messed up girl that doesn't know, you know, anything. I felt like they were right and I was wrong. So many people could tell you that you're wrong and you made it up and then you're going to finally believe it, especially right. if you're on medication. Yeah, you know? exactly. So I want to, I'm sorry to cut you off there. We've got no one problem. minute to a heart out there. But um, on August 18th, there is, you were interviewed for a segment that will air on A&E. Very quickly, what's, will the segment tell your story? And, um, Amy, yes, can... it's August 18th at 9.30. It's called I Survived a Serial Killer. I love Amy. It's a great network, and this show is amazing. I'll and be, I just I'll be sure to tune my in. heart out to them. All right. And do you have a website? Where, where can people find information about you and your book? Um, any information, they could just Google, Google my name, Jennifer As Benson, and it's Benson with A-S in front of it, As Benson. Or Wonderful. you could go, you could send me an email, the girl in the treehouse at yahoo.com. Thank you so much, Jennifer. We'll definitely get you back because there's so much more to this story. Really appreciate it. Take care of yourself. Welcome back to the Sunday Night Health Show. Marie McGrath hosting this program for you. 
Uh, joining me on the line is uh, not only a friend of mine, he's an internist at Lionsgate Hospital and Whitehorse in the Yukon. He's been in clinical practice for 14 years, and he studied microbiology before medicine. He is none other than Dr. Kevin McLeod. Good evening, Dr. McLeod. Maureen, thank you for having me on. It's, it's nice to oh. chat with you again. Yeah, great to chat with you. And thank you for the idea for my Back to the Bedroom segment. I'm going to be talking about ceiling mirrors. So I really oh, I appreciate like that. I, I like that. Although it's funny, my kids, were, my kids were wrestling in the living room and super loud. And I said, you guys got to be quiet. I'm going to do this radio thing. And, and they, they said they had a safe word for wrestling. So if, if one kid was hurting another too much, they, they yelled out banana and they got off. So perfect. <laughs> so the family theme thing here today. Absolutely. We're all still going stir crazy. But I was also interested <laughs> in your tweet. And if you don't follow Kevin McLeod on Twitter, you should. He is at Doc Kevin McLeod. And it's fantastic. It's informative. It's funny. It's great. Um, so, and I really appreciate it. So tonight, um, I read your tweet, which was distance, limiting class size and masking. As we look to bringing the kids back to school or sending the kids back to school, uh, those are all essential, especially for kids under 12 because they can't be vaccinated. Tell me why this is so important and it's not happening in schools. Well, I think, I think one of the things that I, you know, I think we can really fairly say with this pandemic is there's so much we don't know. I mean, we've, we've learned so much in the last 18 months, but, but there's still so much we don't know, right? And, and with the Delta variant, there's a lot we, we still are going to be learning. And if you could put us in a time machine and go ahead six months, I, I think we'd, we'd know so much more than we do now. So then we've got to make decisions based on the information that we have available to us now and, and make smart decisions, right? That for me, at least, and, and my family, that the last thing I want to see is you know, rolling school closures or back to online learning. I think kids need to be in classrooms. They need to get that sort of in-person teaching, that social development. So so then we've got to make good decisions to keep them as safe as possible. And, you know, the, the data does suggest that wearing masks reduces risk of spread. And, and that doesn't just mean you wearing a mask and and not picking something up from somebody else, but you wearing a mask because, hey, maybe you're a young kid and you don't really know you have COVID because a lot of kids may be, you know, minimally symptomatic. Well, it helps that kid not spread it to another kid. Um, You know, making sure that all the teachers are vaccinated, making sure the parents are vaccinated, making sure that older siblings are vaccinated, you know, hand washing, have have still distance in class because if, if we let it get out of control, which is a possibility with the Delta variant and how it spreads, you know, suddenly then in October or November, there's going to be, you know, another dreaded reset or, hey, we're going to close schools for two weeks or, and I know nobody's talking about that now, but we got to kind of anticipate ahead. Um, you know, and, I think and you're do, right, especially for working parents, that that's going to be a big well, absolutely. problem. Absolutely. So, so do the right parents. thing now. And you yeah. know what, if the kid, if your kid has to wear a mask and it sucks and they don't want to do it, you know, it's not, it really isn't the end of the world when the alternative um, you, you know, is, is potentially a lot worse. And what's the worst that's going to happen? We're going to be seeing a year from now, wow, they didn't really need to wear masks. Maybe they didn't do much. You know, we don't know that yet, though, right? So I, I think it's better that we err on the side of caution with with simpler interventions. If somebody said, you know, you won't catch COVID if you take off all your clothes and cover yourself in honey and roll around in the dirt. I mean, that just makes no sense. We're not going to do that. But something like a mask, which is so minimal, you know, makes sense. So let's make logical decisions and, and not get too fearful about it. 
of course. And if you have a question for the doctor, and, and any question that is, any health question, the number to call is one 399 9898 That's 1-877-399-9898. Um, how concerned are you, Dr. McLeod, with the rising... Uh, admissions to the hospitals with the impact of uh, the Delta variant on our healthcare resources. I think a lot of people forget that part of this pandemic is that we may actually run out of ICU beds, ventilators, respiratory therapists, nurses, because uh, a lot of healthcare workers have been in this now on the front lines for a year and a half. They are stressed. They're um, having a lot of difficulty, you know, with uh, mental health and emotional health and also balancing their family and, and their risk of, of transmitting the disease perhaps to their to their parents or somebody in their family that might be immunocompromised. So how concerned are you with this Delta variant? Um, absolutely. I mean, you, you, I think people are getting burnt out. I, I feel that myself. Um, we're very lucky right now, at least in the lower mainland in British Columbia, where, where I am, that, you know, our hospital um, admissions are pretty low right now for COVID. And, and that's pretty similar across the country. When you look at you look at the American situation, especially in the South, where, where vaccination rates are are way lower. I mean, their admissions are going through the roof. Um, but, you know, some states have like 40% of people vaccinated. We're, we're running at 80% in, in British Columbia now, um, you know, and it's pretty similar across the country. So if, if we can get, and, and I think we're going to get to this, if we can get to 90 plus percent vaccinated, we're never going to get 100%, right? There's always going to be a handful of people who can't get it for some medical reason. And then there's just going to be people who really don't believe in it. They really don't want to do it. And we're not going to change their minds, unfortunately. But again, if we get to 90 plus percent, that's amazing. I mean, we'll be leading the world for for a number of people vaccinated. And it doesn't mean that people aren't going to get COVID. I think that's one of the things that that people forget, especially with the Delta variant. You know, if you're vaccinated, you, you still have a, a almost equal chance of getting COVID if you're exposed to it. You know, the virus will get into you, but you won't get really sick. Um, you know, and, and a couple of days ago in British Columbia, I put a tweet out just saying you know, data that the, the Ministry of Health had put out. We had nobody in ICU that had been doubly vaccinated in British Columbia. It was all people who were unvaccinated. And it, it really shows you the, the power of being vaccinated. One of the concerns with Delta is that the vaccine may be slightly less effective. Um, and then the other piece that, you know, we're seeing um, is maybe the efficacy of the vaccine wears off over time, right? So, you know, this isn't a vaccine that you get and you, you know, never have to get it again, right? It's it's not like HPV for kids when they're a teen, they get it and they're protected for the rest of their life. You know, this is something where there probably are going to have to be boosters at some periodic time frame. Um, but I mean, that's not an insurmountable problem. Um, you know, we really just need to get as many people vaccinated as we, we possibly can, uh, because that also keeps the numbers low of people coming into hospital, right? And that there are going to be, you know, with Delta and then whatever the next variant is, I mean, there are going to be breakthrough cases where you know, at-risk people who are immunocompromised or maybe they have some underlying lung disease or something else and they've done everything right and they're vaccinated and you know, they're still going to have the bad luck of landing in a hospital with COVID and we, we've got to have room for them. And we've also got to have room for all the people who get all the other crappy things that happen, right? The cancers and, you know, run-of-the-mill pneumonias and heart attacks. Like we've just got to have room to get them in there. 
That's right. That's right. Um, I think of Florida and I think of Alberta. But, um, you know, I read a, a WebMD just recently and, and they talked about a young woman who lost her mother, her grandmother and her fiance all in the matter of, of two weeks. They all were lost to COVID. They were all afraid to get the vaccine. Now, Florida is in a in a state, <laughs> um, you know, that has been very much politicized down there. There's very low vaccination uptake. Um, we're seeing surging cases of coronavirus. The same thing can happen in Canada for people who are unvaccinated. And, and you're right. We're not going to talk those people into getting vaccinated. I do have a caller. I have Benny in Abbotsford, British Columbia. Hi, Benny. Uh, yes, good evening there. Um, it looks like we're going to have to live with this these viruses for a long time. I'm uh, double vaccinated with Pfizer as of June the 15th. I'm 77 years old. I uh, haven't had a serious case of the flu since 1968, and I have a strong immune system. I'm not a I, I'm not paranoid. I want to start living again. I take precautions. You know, I uh, don't go into large crowds at the present moment. But I'm ready to go back to the nightclubs, okay? And I'm going to take the precautions of wearing a mask. And I'm going to start dancing. Um, even wearing a mask. And being close to another person that I don't know is vaccinated or not, what are the chances of me getting the the virus and how serious it could it affect me even though I've had two vaccine shots? You know, Benny, it's it's such a good question. So you know, and it it, it, it it'll hopefully help some of the Marines listeners really understand this. So, you know, you, you think of your body, you've had those vaccine shots, you've got all these little proteins in there and other things and antibodies that are like all ready to go to get rid of this COVID virus if it comes into your system, right? So, you know, then what matters, you go to that nightclub, if the community incidence, so the number of people with COVID is pretty low, the chance of somebody being in that nightclub that's sitting next to you with this virus is really small, right? Um, and if that person who's sitting next to you who, wow, it's just bad luck, they have this COVID bug, has been vaccinated, you know, and I know this has been a bit controversial, but I, I really do think that people who've been vaccinated probably shed a bit less virus than people who haven't. It's not zero, like they still are going to shed some virus. But, you know, they, they maybe pose a bit less risk to you. You've got a mask on that's going to protect you a little bit as well, right? And, and then again, if you get that virus into you, you've got those antibodies, so you're going to help neutralize it. Um, you know, and your chance of getting really sick is, is, I think, quite small. Is it zero? No, we've got to be honest with people. Like, this virus, unfortunately, is going to be here, I think, for the longer term, right? This isn't going away. We're not ever getting to you know, eliminating this like we did with smallpox. It's just not that kind of a virus. It's going to be really easy to eliminate. So we, we do have to be realistic and live with it as well, because what are you going to do? Are you, you're never going to go back out to the nightclub. Are you never going to dance again? You know, you do have to live your life, um, but you want to do it in the safest way possible. So you being vaccinated, you know, not going out of your sick, washing your hands, you know, still having some distance between you and other people, um, you know, until we sort of 
know and understand a little bit more about this Delta variant, I think makes sense. But should you lock yourself in your house and not go out if you're double vaccinated? No, absolutely not. Right. I mean, you know, that that isn't good for for our mental health or anything either. I think the most important thing here, Dr. McLeod, is that Benny is going to be at the nightclubs. Anyway, I have a call from David in Winnipeg. Hello, David. Hi, how are take... you tonight? Fine, thanks. How are you? Great, thanks. I wanted to know if, uh, if, if we need to get to a point where our governments are going to be a little bit more um, forceful in allowing double vaccinated people more rights and freedom and asking non-vaccinated people to stay away from the movie theaters and the restaurants and those places as a motivator for those people to get vaccinated and as a, uh, a, a way to reduce the spreading of the Delta variant and the mutations moving forward. I love it. Dr. Well, McLeod, what do you Dave, think? David, is a, it's a really good question, right? Because if we're really honest, um, the more people who get the virus, the more mutations there are, right? So if we can get everybody vaccinated and try to reduce that chance of more and more mutations and it's spreading more and more, we actually do ourselves a favor and we do the whole planet a favor, right? Now, you know, for that to work, we really got to get the whole planet vaccinated. It's not just Canada. I, I think you probably will gradually see, and you can sort of see this playing out in the media a little bit now, like, more and more restrictions on the the remaining kind of 10% of people who ultimately decide against vaccination. And you can, you can debate the ethics of that. Um, But you know, if if we have a relatively safe vaccine, is it a hundred percent safe? No, absolutely not. We got to be upfront with people. It's not perfect, um, but it's, it's very safe compared to to the risk of getting COVID. You know, I I think you are going to see restrictions. You you may see restrictions on international travel. I mean, certain countries won't let you go unless you're doubly vaccinated. You may see restrictions on airlines. You know, the airlines may want adequate proof that you have been double vaccinated. You're going to see certainly private businesses. You're already seeing businesses where they're saying, you know, Microsoft, I think, has done this. I think Google's doing it. Walmart's doing it. If if you're not doubly vaccinated, you can't work for us. You know, yeah, you exactly. pack your bags and go somewhere else. So you're, you're going to, government's going to do it. I heard the recently the U.S. military is saying all of their soldiers have to be doubly vaccinated. So you, you are going to see um, in a gradual way, I think, pushing in that direction. You'll have some holdouts and, you know, we're not going to be arresting people because they didn't get a vaccine. But, but you, you know, you may then get it up to the 95%. <laughs> Back to the Sunday Night Hell Show. Dr. Kevin McLeod is my guest. Thank you so much for staying on the line, Dr. McLeod. He's an internist at Lionsgate Hospital and also Whitehorse in the Yukon, and he's studied microbiology before medicine. Um, if you have a question, the number to call one eight seven seven three nine nine ninety eight ninety eight. You got to get it in. We've got about two minutes left. Uh, Dr. McLeod, uh, do you, uh, we mentioned a little bit earlier that? Uh, we're in this for the long haul. I think a lot of people thought this was going away by the summer. It was looking really good. Canada was opening up. and uh, But now it looks like the Delta variant is upon us, the Lambda, the Delta Plus. How, how long, what's your best guess in, in less than a minute <laughs> as to how long we're in this for? Oh, God, if I tell you, you'll kill me, Marie. We won't be friends anymore. <laughs> I mean, I, I think, you know, honestly. One sec. This- 
more important. I've got a call on Christine and Burnaby. <laughs> Sorry. Hello, Christine. That's fine. <laughs> Hi. <laughs> Hello. Um, yeah, I'm just wondering if, um, if a person was to receive an antiviral medication rather than a vaccine, um, would there be a chance of, uh, of a variant um, being created or developed? Well, it's a good question. I mean, you know, we, we do use antivirals for this, right? Like I see this online all the time, people saying, well, why don't you, why do you guys use treatments? We do. I mean, if somebody comes in and they're really sick with COVID, we, we give them monoclonal antibodies, we use steroids, we use all sorts of different treatments. Um, so we, we do do that. You know, we don't have a fabulous antiviral for, for coronaviruses. If we did, we wouldn't have the common cold that's been around for ages, right? So, you know, the, the antivirals are not perfect. I think it may be a way that, that gets us out of this. Um, maybe, maybe, maybe we, we get an antiviral that, that gets us out of this a little bit sooner than just the vaccines alone, but, but we're not there yet. Welcome back to the final segment of the Sunday Night Health Show. Joining me on the line is the Executive Director of Sex and Self, a Montreal not-for-profit organization that focuses on advocacy for sexual and reproductive health and rights. She is Felicia Jasandi. Hello, Felicia. Hi, Maureen. How are you? I'm well, thanks. How are you doing? I'm doing good. It's definitely been an interesting couple weeks, uh, to be in the position that I've been in. <laughs> I can imagine, especially being in Montreal as well. I invited you on the program because I wanted to talk to you about the ill-fated decision of the uh, Montreal Canadiens, specifically Jeff Molson, who is the president of that organization and, and part owner, who drafted Logan Mayu, somebody who has a criminal past, um, about uh, with regard to violence against women. In fact, he was convicted in Sweden about a year ago of sharing uh, without permission uh, illicit photos of uh, a a young woman. What is, what does this kind of thing uh, do to somebody like you who works in this field, uh, works so closely to advocate for uh, victims of sexual assault and, uh, and um, other people who have been are injured by criminal behavior like this? Well, I mean, I definitely have to say it's been a very sad time to be a Montrealer and to be a woman. Um, it was very, very exciting to watch the Montreal Canadiens go so far in the Stanley Cup and then make a decision like this, essentially especially since this year, in April 2021, after eight Quebec women were murdered within eight weeks due to homicide, um, there was a women's march. And in industries like this, when we really need male allies to come and support and stand with us and stand in alignment with us, we see actions like this happen, Um, which is very, very upsetting to see and to also hear the woman's statement, the victim in the situation, the young girl, come forward and say that all she wanted was a sincere apology. And she said that she received a text that was no longer than three sentences. Whereas the Canadians are coming forward and the general manager is coming forward saying that the young man, you know, 
admitted he made a serious mistake and were acknowledging his poor behavior when he's a criminal. And obviously nobody in this institution is really paying any direct cause to the victim of the situation, which is the woman. Um, it's also really interesting to look at the media coverage. If you, you know, Google Mayu recently, um, right now the Montreal media is really driving this narrative that he was out left to dry and that the Canadians should not have drafted him, even though he, you know, requested to not be drafted because he did put out a statement saying that he felt like he wasn't mature enough. But from the woman's perspective, the victim's perspective to say that she received a text no longer than three sentences and, and there's some things not lining up. From whom did she receive that text? So Logan Mayu sent her uh, a message. When they went into court about a year ago, her request was to basically receive a sincere apology. And I actually looked into the case a little bit more. Um, and he was given a fine uh, that I think translated to about $2,100 Canadian um, from Stockholm currency. So... He really wasn't punished that much, and there wasn't, and there isn't any kind of reparations, at least to our knowledge, to the public's knowledge, being made. Because the Montreal Canadiens and the general manager Marc Bergevin uh, came forward, and this, they said that they're working on, you know, creating reparations and supporting this young man through this journey. And I definitely think that there should be spaces for, you know men to reconcile and to learn and be rehabilitated from these situations. But the narrative that's going on right now is if you're a man and you are a sexual predator con convicted of sexual misconduct, if you're a, mm -hmm. a young man watching my you get drafted into the NHL, you're saying that this is all okay. And right. that he's, he's you can rewarded. still be. Yeah, he 100%. hasn't been punished exactly. He's being rewarded. Do you think that Jeff Molson and the others are endorsing a culture of violence against women um, by drafting Logan Mayu? A hundred percent. And what's actually very interesting to note is that not only does this violence against women kind of perpetuate in this culture toxic masculinity and the sports environment because we know that there's a history of you know athletes being very abusive to their wives a lot of this kind of alpha male energy is is essentially born into this athletic culture what's really interesting to look at is Max Bechervain who's the general uh, manager of the Montreal Canadiens was actually an assistant general, general manager for the Chicago Blackhawks and while he was the assistant manager for the Chicago Blackhawks, this was about in 2010, there was a player actually under his watch that came forward with sexual assault um, allegations. So a male player coming forward against the video coach Bradley Aldridge, and he accused um, Bradley of assaulting him. And not only was he dismissed, but he was demonized by his players. So the general manager of the Montreal Canadiens has a reputation for the last 10 years of being mildly at least complicit to sexual assault and sexual violence. But in my opinion, if this has happened before and it's obviously being happened again and he's endorsing it, I would feel very comfortable by saying that Marc Bergevin is not only endorsing it, but praising individuals who are 
and who have these tendencies, who have these um, allegations or accusations. And actually, Bradley Aldridge, who was the video coach of the Chicago Blackhawks in 2010, eventually did admit to assaulting a minor three years after that situation. So while the, wow. the case never fully closed in the Chicago Blackhawks scenario with the player, because I can't imagine what it's like to be a male in that environment to come forward with sexual assault allegations when you're such a small minority um, and to not pursue the claims and then to see essentially your perpetrator confess to assaulting a minor three years later. I can't imagine the trauma that that player was going through, but to be the general manager or to be the assistant general manager and be in two institutions where this is continuously happening Obviously, there's an issue, and whether he's complicit or whether he is completely just careless with his players, with the environment, with the culture, with the reputation, both times, um, whether it was with the Chicago Blackhawks or with the Montreal Canadiens, both statements are very dismissive. Uh, whether it's with the Chicago Blackhawks, they were very, very cut and dry with the court cases that ended up happening. Um, from about 2010 to 2013. And then the statements that the Montreal Canadiens put out right after they drafted Mayu is just, it's embarrassing. Like, you know that there's going to be public backlash, but you also know that it's just objectively wrong. Um, this boy is not, like, God's gift to earth. He can take a couple years to make reparations. And as a sexual health advocate and as someone who has programming for um, young men and women and anyone in between, I'm really interested to see what the Montreal Canadiens do to essentially re help rehabilitate this 18-year-old. I don't think actually that a hockey team is a therapeutic environment, especially <laughs> given who it's led by. But it's a therapeutic environment for any sexual predator or anybody who has been convicted of a crime. We have about a minute left, and I just want to ask you, this kind of thing, um, how does it affect people who have been sexually assaulted and, and perhaps uh, have been dismissed or, um, you know, noses have been turned up by it or, or people who have been disregarded? How does this trigger them and, and what does that do to them? Well, I think it's definitely something that's very individual and it's uh, specific to each person and each individual's trauma. But I think not only does it reaffirm to women that they feel like they already are not going to be believed and that their counterparts, the predators, are going to be praised, if not rewarded for their actions. I think that this, this situation, the Montreal situation in itself, also puts men at a disadvantage too. Men who have been assaulted, they know the environment. They know it's not accepted. They know they're going to be dismissed. It's just perpetuating all of these really, really terrible fears that survivors of sexual assault have. And it may be entirely triggering too, because we don't have a clear, you know, yellow brick road to going through the process of either accusing or coming forward or, um, resolving an incident of sexual assault. So it's all of these these huge bridges to climb and mountains to climb 
Um, when it comes to sexual assault, it can be extremely triggering for individuals who had a very, very treacherous experience either coming forward or advocating for themselves or even seeking out assistance in institutions that are supposed to protect them. I think that's the yeah, biggest thing to take from here. Absolutely. You're absolutely correct, Felicia. Thank you so much for joining me this evening. We'll definitely have to get you back because I really feel we need to keep this conversation going. Uh, You know, we we cannot just let, uh, we cannot forget this and just let it, you know, pass us by like a a puck flying on the ice. So thank you so much. Where can people get more information about the work that you do? Absolutely. If you want to learn more about our organization in Montreal, and we're actually expanding to Ontario, uh, you can check us out at www.sexandself.com. And we're on all our social media platforms under Sex and Self. You can find us there. Thank you so much, Felicia Jasandi. Really a pleasure to have you on the program tonight. Okay, well, that is a wrap Uh, Thank you to all of my fabulous guests and to all of you listeners out there. And remember, when you stumble on this gravel road of life, make it part of your dance. You can go to my website, MaureenMcGrath.com, or my virtual health clinic, GetCleopatra.com. And uh, remember to uh, come back next week because I will be back. You are listening to the Sunday Night Health Show, and I am Maureen McGrath. Thanks for tuning in, everybody. You've been listening to a 980 CKNW podcast. Listen live at cknw.com, the Radio Player Canada app, TuneIn, Amazon Alexa, HD Radio at 101.1 FM HD2, and on the AM dial, 980 CKNW.